the Lord is speaking so many things to me so quickly that I feel like I need to share before I preach the message this morning. And I just hope that I can articulate everything that the Lord is saying prophetically. I want to call to your attention in 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 19. You don't have to turn there unless you just want to make sure I'm not telling you a lie, which might be good. Uh, you need to do that when somebody starts saying this is in the Bible. You need to check. You need to do a fact check. But it says in verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians 5, Do not quench the Spirit. The NIV says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. So you know what? God's Spirit is like a fire, burns like a fire, and if the command is not to put out the fire, that means it can be put out and you have that ability. God moving in your life and doing what He wants to do in your life as an individual and as a church is dependent upon you. The next verse after that, in context, part of not putting out the Spirit's fire is doing what verse number 20 says. The NIV says, Do not treat prophecies with contempt. The NASB says, do not despise prophetic gifting. You know what the word despise means? Or contempt, it means to count something as worthless. And people here, there is prophetic utterance that has went forth. With what Sister Emily was saying about what is coming you don't realize, you know, back in May, God began to speak to me about revival for this city. And that's why I started doing the tent meetings. And after the first tent meeting I did in June, I preached in this pulpit. And the Lord told me to preach what I preached at the beginning of the tent revival about how the road to Emmaus was a highway of revival and how it was going to come to Hot Springs. And there's a people. And I preached it. I preached this message almost in every Assembly of God church in this city. In 2018, all four Assembly of God churches I preached in, and the word to them was don't get caught up in the pleasure of revival without taking up the responsibility. Sister Emily said the same thing. Onan spilled his seed on the ground in the Old Testament. Why? He wanted pleasure without having to take up the responsibility to raise up what God was wanting to birth. And God struck, oh man, you want your church to die? Continue to abort the seed. You're mad about this nine month, right up to the time of birth, aborting the baby? The church has been doing it in this city for decades. And what's going on in our country is a reflection of the abortion that the church has been performing in the spirit. They don't, we fuss because they don't want to raise that. They've made their bed, let them lay. Let them raise that baby. Let them take responsibility. You have not been taking responsibility. And this morning, the Spirit's moving, and Sister Emily is saying something that I've heard myself say all the time. Don't be spectating, start participating. And people don't pray. We just, well, pray a little bit. I'm tired, and I'll go sit down and watch what happens. That is going to snuff out the Spirit's fire. Then Sister Connie's, through the gift that God, she begins to declare, press in, come in. That's an invitation to go beyond where, where you like, I just feel like I'll pray a little bit. I'm tired now, I'll sit down. 
You got to learn that when you don't feel like praying to push past that point and keep pressing in. There was an invitation, yet some of you, and I know it's easy to look in the natural, you sitting there and everybody has different emotions and ways they express their, their encounter with the Lord, but you know it's just like the, like the Lord was showing me this contentment just to be casual in that moment and not go after it. You know, our dear sister began to just break out and sing or begin to speak to me. A lot of different things from that song, but one thing, the song was the Lord giving you an invitation to press in, to be broken, to be the fragrant aroma of revival in the city. And some of you are just unmoved. You know why you spectate and you don't participate? Because what you do from Monday to Saturday, you go home and you spend hours entertaining yourself with TV, Facebook, YouTube, Netflix, and you don't entertain the presence of God in prayer, and that's why you come to the church house, and instead of making God's house a house of prayer, you have made it... You have made it a place of entertainment. Showmanship. There's been prophetic words that went forth about churches in this city that made it a show on the stage. You want a show? There are churches that will entertain you. I don't want a church that will entertain me. I want a church that will give me the opportunity to entertain the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and make it about the presence of God. You've got a choice. Lately, you have a choice. The Lord, when I began to do those tent meetings, the Lord just told me, just host my presence. Go as long. Give free. Just give me an opportunity to do. We, we had those meetings. We don't have any less than a two and a half hour service. You know why? Because we refuse to get in a hurry. God can do it in five minutes, Brother Grady. Yes, I know he can. The question is not, not that God can do anything in five minutes. The question is, can you move in five minutes? God, God can't be rushed. He's got unlimited patience. The thing with you is you rush and you miss him. For those of you asleep, I call to you by the Spirit of God to wake up, press in, get off your blessed assurance, pray fast and tell somebody about Jesus. There you have it. May the Lord humble us today. May the Lord just get our hearts. This is not condemning the Lord. It's Brian trying to bring conviction to his people. The Bible says he's going to come back for a bride that's without spot or wrinkle. Can I tell you before the second coming of Jesus, when he sets foot on this earth, there will be a second coming before the second coming, and the second coming before the second coming is the next wave of the Spirit of God, revival that hit, and only those who are ready, looking and longing for that thing, and without spot and wrinkle, will be able to operate under what is coming. That doesn't interest you, start, go next Sunday, start looking for another church. Pastor Matt don't want to lose anybody. I know for a fact now. He may not have me back. Hallelujah. <laughs> he must have been in desperate, really desperate shape. Called me. You preached. I didn't, somebody else could have preached. I think Sister Emily could have preached. Man, she, th- she already has. But my God, you know, come on, church. We got to get with it, man. Even me, I'm like, man, I got to get with it. Somebody said, that's right. Is that my wife? She knows me better than anybody. She knows I need to repent. 
But church, the love of God and the Spirit of God is compelling all of us. My God, it's time to quit playing the games we've played and let's go after Jesus. Let's go after the Lord. I just want to say that it is always an honor to preach the word, but I am just so honored that Pastor Matt trusts me to minister in his absence, in his pulpit. And something interesting about that is the Lord began to speak to me at the end of 2018, and he told me the first three months of the year that I was not to travel to preach outside of Hot Springs. And this is the second time a local pastor at last minute needed somebody the day before to preach, and I'd be able to go and, and fill that pulpit and bring the word of the Lord to that church. So I know the Lord's using it. There's other things that have, took, that have taken place as a result of that. And so um, if I would have not heeded that, I probably would have been somewhere else preaching this morning. Uh, uh, because uh, a church wanted me to do some evangelism training with them. I told them I could not go to minister um, on a Saturday or whatever. And so they, since I couldn't go, they brought their church to my house yesterday. And so if I'd have went down there, I'd probably been preaching for them this morning and would not have been here. And you, can you see how God orchestrates everything? So I know the Lord wants me here, and I just want to honor your pastor for allowing me to do this. Man, what revelation pours forth that from that servant of God. I know he hears from the Lord. Let me tell you, I remember the first time I came here on Sunday morning that Pastor Matt was preaching, and I walk in the door. He don't really know me other than Facebook, and he says, man, I feel like the Lord gave me a word for you, and you walking in here this morning, confirmation, I'm supposed to give it to you. And he had no idea what was going on in my life, but he pretty much just described everything. And then he preached this message from the pulpit that described other things he didn't describe in the word he gave me in the lobby. And that's not only one. It's like the next time I came, the same thing happened again. There was one time he gave me this word. He said, the Lord said it's time to enlarge your tent. And I was looking at buying a bigger tent for the tent revival. So, all right, Lord. So here we've been digging in that. And, and uh, so there's all sorts of things the Lord is doing. So I just said all that say that, man. You've got a pastor who has a real heart. He hears from God. And uh, you are blessed to have Pastor Matt and Sister Emily as your pastors. Give them a hand. So, still need to press in and quit spectating. Before y'all clap too much for me. Amen. I ain't forgot about that. Love you though. If you have your Bibles, go to the book of Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be... Begin reading in verse number 69 and read all the way through verse number 75. As you're turning there, would you mind standing for the reading of the Lord's word? You just, as an act of honor unto the word of God, open your hearts this morning. I'll be reading from the NIV. It says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You are also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him. And said to the people, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. 
After a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This morning the word, the message the Lord has for you is called the sin of silence. The sin of silence. Would you just lift your hands to the Lord as a sign of surrender? Let it not just be outward physical surrender. Get your hearts in the posture of surrender. Close your eyes, church, right now. And in your mind, ask the Lord. Tell the Lord this. Lord, whatever you say to me today, I will obey it. So, Father, give them the grace to fulfill what they have declared unto you. I thank you that your word does not return void. May it accomplish what you sent it to do in our lives. Help me, Lord, make my tongue as the pen of a ready writer. I am in your hands. I am yielded. Use me as a sword in your hand. Put your voice in my mouth. Give me utterance, God, beyond my knowledge and my ability. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you've been in church for any number of years, even maybe in a short time, you've probably heard of the story that we just read where Peter denies Jesus. If you don't know, Peter, he declared, God, you know, even if you know, I'll forsake you, I'll never forsake you. If I gotta die with you, I'll be with you, I won't deny you. And Jesus told him, you know, that rooster's gonna crow, and you're gonna deny me three times before that rooster crows and you know what it happened just like Jesus said it was going to happen and we look at this story how can a man who saw the miracles that Jesus performed knew who I mean he was the first one to voice his opinion that Jesus you are the Christ the son of the living God he had that by revelation he knew who Jesus was he spoke up before anybody else did but then he's confronted three times twice by two servant girls couldn't even name the name of Jesus. He denies Jesus. And we'll sit there and we'll just... I'm glad I've never denied Jesus. And most of us, if we were asked the question, do we know Jesus? Most of us would answer, yes, we do know Jesus. And we would not find ourselves denying his name. But let me tell you that the church has still found a way to deny Christ. Let me pose this question to you. Let me pose this question to you. Which one of the wounds that was inflicted upon Jesus killed him? A crown of thorns placed on his head. Were those the wounds that ultimately caused Jesus to die? Or the whipping of the cat of nine tails on his back that ripped flesh from his back. 39 lashings. Was that wounding what ultimately caused Jesus' death? 
What about the nails in his wrist and in his feet? Were those the wounds that ultimately brought Jesus' death forward? Let me pose this idea that none of those wounds were actually what killed Jesus. But the wound that killed Jesus was the wound of people's silence. Nobody spoke up for him. Blasphemer. My God. The inscription, King of the Jews. Son of God. Liar. Those 12 men knew who he really was, but nobody spoke up for him. We fought Peter because he verbally denied Jesus, but where were the other 11? Why did they not come to his defense? Silence killed Jesus. Now, God worked it in his plan to be such for your salvation and my salvation. But you know, today, you know what the sin of the church is? We are guilty of not declaring who he is. We're guilty of the sin of silence. What is the mission of the church? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus commanded, Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The church's mission, and people will advocate that the church's mission, number one, is to make disciples. A disciple is a disciplined learner, a disciplined follower. That's why Jesus put it there at the end of that command to make sure you teach these people who are disciples to observe all that I commanded you. And we should be doing that. But I've heard a lot of teaching and pushing that this is the number one thing that the church should be doing. But the way that's presented as the number one thing the church should be doing minimizes what they're actually trying to minimize what Jesus commanded in Mark 16, 15, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. In other words, what is more important? To have the formation of a Christ follower or the birthing of a Christ follower? You cannot have disciples without converts. And years ago when evangelism was mass and people had the tent meetings where people just come in by droves like the Billy Graham crusade and people had the Jesus movement where they were sharing their faith more and more, they missed an element of the command of Jesus and that they were preaching all the time but were not careful in raising them up as disciples. As a result of being from one extreme, now people say it's all about disciple making, but we have now become more guilty of the sin of science than ever before. We are not preaching the gospel. People might put the label evangelist on me, and I guess that's the label that I put on myself, and I actually heard the Lord said that I would, that I would be an evangelist, and, and even when I got ordained by the assemblies of God, the Lord spoke that word to me again and said, please don't let any man convince you otherwise. And guess what man has been trying to do? Convince me otherwise. There would be some that would argue that going to church to church is not really what evangelism is or what an evangelist does. And I've heard those arguments and there are some valid points made. But let me tell you this. Regardless of how you view an evangelist and what an evangelist does, regardless of the title of the person behind the pulpit and regardless of the title of the person in the pew or in the seat of the church, we are all to do the work of an evangelist. 
The command to go into all the world and preach the gospel was not limited to the 12 disciples. It extends to you and to me. We are to evangelize. We are to proclaim this gospel. The word preach means to proclaim. It means to open your mouth and share, tell of the good news. The gospel means good news. Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, born of a virgin woman, living a perfect, sinless life, marching himself to a hill called Golgotha, dying there, buried three days later, coming out of the grave so we can have life. That is good news. And we are to preach it, proclaim it. Open your mouth and say it. Evangelism. We are to evangelize. I saw a starting statistic went on, I think it was Christianity Today, it was one of the uh, few um, websites that posted about this this last week, and they said that a survey was done and millennials that were born between 1981 and 1996 have, or they got this extreme conflict going on in their soul about evangelism and that over half of them actually believe that it is wrong for you to share your faith. Sir! Madam! Jesus said, go! Preach! Would Jesus tell you to do anything that is wrong? No. It's not forcing your beliefs on anybody. You can tell somebody what you can believe. You can tell them and proclaim the gospel, but you can't make them believe the gospel. It's not wrong to share our faith. Bill Bright, in his book, The Coming Revival, back in 1995, said that only 2% of Christians share their faith. And I don't know about you, but that's, think about this. That statistic was given during the, the year before, the last year they say, the millennials that were to be born that now say it's wrong to evangelize. And back then only 2% of Christians were sharing their faith. And a lot of the people that are coming up in the church now believe it's wrong to evangelize. How much less could it be that people are actually sharing their faith? Two percent are disobeying the will of God. You know what my Bible tells me in Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23, that only those who do the will of God are going to make heaven, not just those who name the name of Jesus. If 100% of Christians are naming the name of Jesus, but only two are sharing their faith, I'd say 98% are out of the will of God. And could it be said that the majority of us here today might actually not have our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but we are actually on a one-way train with a ticket stamped to hell? Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then listen here, friend. Be sure of this. You are not saved yourself. Charles Spurgeon said that, man, that stuck me, stuck me for years. You have no wish. There's nothing in you that desires for people to make heaven and miss hell. Then you are not saved yourself. I don't care what prayer you repeated in an altar, and I don't care what church you did it in, if you don't have something in you that compels you to want to see people snatched out of hell and make heaven, then you are not saved. You are a false convert. 
We should be evangelizing. I want to tell you a couple of things, three things that evangelism is not. Number one, I start with a quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I think that's how you say it. I don't know if he was a sissy, and that's why I don't know. But A-S-S-I-S-S-I is what it said on the internet. And all these, some people say it's misattributed. They didn't really say it, but it's been something that circulated for a while. And he said this, supposedly. At all times, preach the gospel, but when necessary, use words. I, first time I heard that, I thought, man, that's so powerful, but I don't believe it to be powerful the way that I used to believe it is powerful. Because at first glance, it seems like, man, that's pretty legit. You should live your life in such a way that people see Christ in you, but that at the same time, it gives us this idea that we don't have to open our mouths. The Apostle Paul just didn't live it. He lived it probably better than any of us had, but he was a proclaimer. Who exhibited the grace and the love of God better on earth than anybody but Jesus, yet he was a proclaimer of the kingdom? This idea that we just got to live it before people is a deception. If you do not proclaim with your mouth the Lord Jesus, people should see something on us that gives us away. We read the account of Peter. Your speech gives you away. Your accent gives you away. We know you were with Jesus, but what about the other 11 disciples? Nobody was asking them. Sometimes people don't see what they should see because they're looking in the natural. With an ordinary human being, look at you. They may not know you from Adam. Mentioned the evangelism class I taught at my house yesterday, and the pastor's like, all right, I want to take you out to eat, and they aren't from a big place like Hot Springs. If you even consider Hot Springs a big, big place, it's the biggest place I've ever lived. And they were from a small, rural, more rural area, and so they didn't want to go to McDonald's, Taco Bell, or you know, places that they can get to easily. They want, so we make a long story short, they took us to Texas Roadhouse, and I felt the Holy Ghost. <laughs> I was so drunk in the spirit, my wife was holding the wheel and say, Revive, baby, we're going to die. She really wasn't. That's a lie. I repent. <laughs> we get there, and one of his church members actually left their, their, their phone at my house, so I said, y'all stay here, order. I'll go back and get the phone. And so I was, didn't get seated as early as they did, and so my wife had placed my order for me, and we were sitting there, and I meet the waitress, and I'm always cutting up with people. I'm always cracking jokes with the waiter, like they'll bring my food, and, and then I eat, and they ask me, how was it? And I said, well, the... The, the steak was a little tainted. They said, tainted? Yeah, tainted enough of it. You know, and I'm always cutting up with the waitress. But I, I remember we were talking about something, and she was talking about all the, the rolls they have there, and it puts on the pounds, and how she can't lose weight because she loves the rolls here. I'm like, well, you can do it. I can do it. I did it. I lost 60 pounds last year. And I'm like, it's like really? Yeah. And I pulled out my phone. I said, yeah, you got to check out my before and after picture. And I showed her my before picture. You know what she said? Oh, yeah, I see that beer belly. I said, I'll have you know, ma'am, that's no beer belly. I'm a minister. That belly was a chicken coop. <laughs> if I wouldn't have told her I was a minister and by thus doing that show her I was a Christian, she would have thought I was just like anybody else. 
And that conversation opened the door, and within five minutes, I showed how she was a sinner heading to hell and how the goodness of God was displayed on the cross and that she needed his forgiveness. She'd, I could have shown her love, friendliness, been kind, left her a big tip. Without proclaiming Jesus, she wouldn't have known who Jesus was and didn't even realize the danger that hell presented for her life as an unbeliever. After that, I invited her here. But you know what? To come here, you know, because I was going, I kind of was going to preach. You know, she's not here this morning. So what if I had just went out the door and hoped that my love and my invitation to get her to church would have done the work? She'd have never heard the gospel. When I was youth pastoring here in a Hot Springs, the Lord allowed me to raise up a couple of uh, ministers of the gospel. One of them, his name is Question Duvall. He got saved underneath my ministry. And I remember the night we picked him up on the van, and it was actually the night he got saved, that uh, I, nobody told him that I was a youth pastor. And, and, uh, and I didn't tell him what my name was. He's riding on that van. I was like, yeah, I hope the youth pastor preaches good tonight and all this stuff. And, and uh, um, we got off the van, was in the gym of the church, and he came up to me. He's like, man, are you, are you a bouncer? By my appearance, I didn't look like anything like a preacher. He thought I was a bouncer. Uh, Thursday night we had revival and a guy came in and he said, I know just looking at you, you've done some time. You've been to prison. I haven't been to prison. <laughs> the guy didn't even know that I was going to be the guy preaching. You can live your life before people show the love, everything, but you know what? They will not convert to Christ until you proclaim how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless there is a preacher? You are the preacher. The second thing that you need to know that is not evangelism is inviting people to church. That is not preaching the gospel. It's inviting people to church. I forget what the percentage is, and Brother Moore says it all the time. Uh, there's a percentage that if somebody would go to church, if somebody just asked them, what's it? it's like a, like a high, it's like 80% of people would just go to church if somebody asked them to do. I'm not against you inviting people to church. Invite somebody to church. Bring them with you. That'd be great. But how many people have you invited to church that did not come that still don't know the gospel? Church doesn't save people. Christ saves people. Preach Jesus to them and then invite them to church. How many people, neighbors, friends, have you invited to church but have never declared the gospel that if they were to die right now while you're sitting in church with bus tail wide open and their blood's on your hands? They may not want to hear it and they may just rather hear you give the invitation to go to church that they know they're not going to oblige you with. You just, you just need to tell them about Jesus. Third thing, that is not evangelism. I guess in a way it is. It really is evangelism. But it's a supplement to gospel proclamation. And that is meeting people's needs. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, minister the orphan and the widow, take care of people's needs. But if we fail to declare the gospel to them, we fail in our mission. My first trip to Nicaragua, we were going to a place 
where the road ended and to go where we were going to go. You had to get in the boat and go a couple miles up the river where there was no electricity, no running water, and they had never heard of Jesus. But before I got there, we stopped in this one city called La Australia, which means the star. We stopped to get out of the back of that truck. You ever seen these, these movies where they put you, like, like they're smuggling these people across the border and they got that tarp over the back of that truck? It's like a cage and they're, and they're riding the big of this. You know what I'm talking about? That's the kind of truck we were riding in. I was holding on for dear life. Boy. I was glad after three or four hours we decided to stop, get a little gas there at the last place you could get gas. And uh, we got to get a Coke. I was ready for a Coke. And this guy come up walking beside me, speaking in Spanish. I understood some of what he was saying, but his breath reeked with alcohol. But he had this gold grill on the top. He had one on the bottom. It was all them teeth was capped off, boy. He looked like a million bucks when he smiled. He was asking for money, which I wasn't going to give him any because obviously he's going to go buy him some alcohol. And the thing that got me is the week before, just a few days before we got there, a medical dental mission team had just left there. Gave medical care, dental care. That's where the guy got the grill. They never proclaimed Jesus to him. They met his need, but yet he's in bondage because they did not share Jesus. Friends, share Jesus, put clothes on their back. Share Jesus. Doesn't mean you have to beat them over the head about their sin. We should bring up the issue of sin because that's what they need to repent of. But love them and clothe them, feed them. Give them warmth at the warming center. Amen? We have to proclaim Jesus. We have to share Jesus. How can I do that? I want to talk to you about a couple ways that you proclaim Jesus. Because it's not just enough to tell me that you're wrong if you don't, if I don't tell you how to or give you some tools. See, the, the work of the evangelist, the call of the evangelist, anyone in the fivefold ministry is to equip the saints for service. And you know what? I'm going to give you some equipment this morning. You know what this is in my hand? Track. Somebody knows what this is. You know what this one says? That this could be your last five minutes of life. You know how much this track cost me? It was free. You can actually go to Fellowship Track League. They'll send you as many tracks as you want. Donation basis. And you know what? How many, who in here goes to Starbucks? Raise your hand, sinners. All right, no. Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you go to Starbucks on a weekly basis? One, two. Okay. Any of y'all go on a daily basis? Okay? You go once a week. What if you gave out a gospel track when you went to Starbucks once a week? That's 52 times somebody had the gospel in their hand. Did you know that, it's, that according to Bill Fay from his book, Share Jesus Without Fear, that it takes a non-believer to hear the gospel 7.6 times before they're able to receive it? And if you, whether it's Starbucks, McDonald's, your workplace, when you go, where, wherever you go to Walmart, my favorite place to talk to people about Jesus outside of church is Walmart, because I go there a lot. I got kids that are hungry. They got to eat. And there's other people that got kids that are hungry, and they're there a lot too, so I share Jesus with them. But you know, if you took one track and gave out one track per week, that's 52 times you gave somebody the opportunity to hear the gospel, and those 52 times in one year, 
as more times of sharing the gospel than you have shared your entire life, most of you. Come here, brother. You know how hard it is to share? No, stay right there. Don't follow me. Follow Jesus. You know how hard it is to give these to people? Elbow grease. And if I say, hey, got something out of the Bible for you today or something like that, nobody's ever told me, no, keep it. They said, Thank. Even some people appreciate it. I remember this past Thursday night, we were going through the drive, not me and him, but me and my kids. And that girl that, that was taking my card and swiping my, you know, getting that money from McDonald's, and she gave me my card and receipt back, and I gave her a gospel tract. She was frowning before then, but she looked like a, like a Christmas tree. And I said, hey, something out of the Bible for you today. Just that did something. Do you think tracks work? Maybe. Have a seat before I embarrass you. <laughs> Ask my wife. I'm likely to do it. I'm always embarrassing her. I'm trying not to... She's not here. She's not here. Okay. A lot of people say, well, that doesn't work. It's going to work better than what you've been doing. Putting that invisible tape over your mouth. If this doesn't have the potential to work, then you need to call the Gideons this week and tell them to quit passing out Bibles. Well, they're not going to open it anyway. But there's people that get saved reading the Bible. They get saved reading the Scripture. And there are Scriptures inside this track. It is the power of God unto salvation. And you know what? Get this. Jesus is the Savior, and God sent his Son as the Savior, but God left his book. Leave a track in somebody's hands. Easy to do. Now, the next thing. In Revelation chapter 12, I believe it's verse 11. It says that they, oh, the saints overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Sharing the gospel does not have to be complicated. Let me see that track. I need that. No. <laughs> Listen. It's simple, small, effective. You've done something. Matter of fact, there was a preacher that was supposed to speak at this conference, I believe, that had to do something with evangelism, and he got up behind the pulpit, and this was his message. Do something, do something, do something. You can pass out a track, but you know what is powerful? The word of your testimony. This Thursday, I leave with SUM Bible College to go to New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm getting ready to go out there with about 500 Bible college students on Bourbon Street during Mardi Gras, and we're going to tell people about Jesus. One of the things they do to equip, I don't know any other Bible college that makes it, a, makes it a graduation requirement to go do that or you don't get to graduate. Matter of fact, you have to go two years in a row or two years total or you don't get your diploma. And they train you before you go. They said, you need to know how to share your testimony in 60 seconds or less. Guess what, folks? Everybody has a story that's B.C., before Christ, if you're a believer. 
Then you got the story of how you got converted, what you're like now. 20 seconds before Christ, 20 second conversion story, 20 seconds what it's done for you. The power of your testimony. That evangelism class I did yesterday, I actually gave them a, a piece of paper that told them how to do a 90-second testimony. I made them get out and they said, are you going to make us do this? I'm like, yeah. So they had to flip over the paper. They had to write out their testimony. Every one of them, except the pastor, he went a minute and 11 seconds. Every other person that was worried about writing their testimony shared their testimony in 33 seconds to 45 seconds and I felt the power of God because as they were telling their they just began to weep. In the area of busyness, it doesn't take much time to do this and give somebody a 60-second testimony. And within 60 seconds, you just gave two plantings of seed for the gospel. That's over 25% of what Bill Fay says it takes for them to hear the gospel to be able to receive it. The power of your testimony. Now I want to call to your attention back into the book of Genesis. Did you know that an outline for evangelism was found in the first book of the Bible? I'm about to show you something. At least I think I am. You probably already heard something like this because some of you have lived a lot longer and we got even some preachers in the house. Brother McGrew, I'm sure you, you probably know all this, right? Thankful for brothers that paved the way for the power of God in Pentecost and preached this uncompromised gospel. And I plan to keep it going, amen? amen? But in Genesis chapter 22, verse 6, if you, some of y'all are already going to, oh, in the Genesis, I got to see this. Hope this is not a letdown. It's a revelation to me, and if it ain't for you, I'll tell somebody about Jesus, whether you do or not. Praise God. Genesis 22, verse 6, in the NIV says, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried, everybody say carried, carried. the fire and the knife. My God, look at... Why was Abraham going up the mountain? Because God commanded him, hey, go and sacrifice your son. He was obeying the command of God. And to fulfill the command of God, there were two things that Abraham carried. The first thing he carried that I want to talk about is the knife. He had a blade and God's word is a blade it is sharper than any double edged two edged sword dividing both joint and marrow soul and spirit exposing the inner workings and intentions and motives of our heart you cannot be a good evangelist if you do not preach the word to people Get in your Bible. How many of y'all remember when I preached here back in October? How many can tell me what the title of my morning message was? One dollar goes to the person who can tell me. Huh? All right, I owe you a dollar. I don't have it on me. I'll bring it Wednesday night. <laughs> Evangelists don't have no... I just... Man, anybody want... I got to take up an offering. Anybody got a dollar? <laughs> just kidding. No, I got, I got it. I got it. We're, go we're supposed to go to Walmart and take something back. I'll find some quarters out there in the parking lot. 
the air of ignorance and one of the things in the assemblies of God, we don't know our Bibles. And guess what? It's across the Bible. We don't know. I'm in, you know, I just finished my last trimester with SUM, Bible College, and when I'm going to preach the gospel, I'm going to get my degree. Praise God. And so I'm here on this video conference, this class, this video conference, and I'm in... I'm seeing all these young people, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, and I realize I'm 37, and my kids called me old. The other day, there was some way they said it, and made me realize I am old, and I'm not cool anymore like I think I am, and all this different stuff is going through my brain, and I'm looking at all these young kids, like, man, these are, kids are young. I am getting up there. And you know what I noticed? Is these kids that are in Bible college, when a teacher asks some of the most basic Bible knowledge questions that nobody answers, and it's stuff you should know from Sunday school. And I don't want to always be the one on there answering all the questions, so I try not to say all the answers. It's about everything they ask. I pretty much know. And these kids don't have a clue. They'll put us in these breakout sessions where we get on the computer and video conference from one another, and we're working on an assignment together, and there's something that they should know. At this point in their life, they shouldn't even have to look up in the Bible to find the answer. They should know it, and they don't know it. The Word of God is alive. And if you don't hide it in your heart, not only will it not keep you from sin, but it will not make you effective in evangelism. We're part of the reason why we're guilty of the sin of silence is we don't know what to tell people. Hosea 4, 6, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You've got to know your Bible and don't be afraid to use the Word when you... What do I say? I shared my testimony. And then what then? If they start, all right, just share something from the Bible. Just quote a scripture to them. There's power in that. One of my favorite people to learn how to do one-on-one one -on -one evangelism from was a guy by a guy named Ray Comfort. He had a TV program with Kirk Cameron called Way of the Master. I gleaned a lot from that. I've seen more people come to Christ than one-to-one -one evangelism, and even in gospel proclamations in churches by using the principle he uses. And he said he was open-air preaching one time. And there's a guy that was a heckler coming, was bothering him. And he'd preach, say something, and that guy said, Oh, God ain't real. You're a fake. You're a... And just, just hammering this guy. And the guy wouldn't shut up. And he kept calling Ray Comfort a, a fake and a liar and a phony. And so Ray just stopped using the principle that he's been teaching people and asked him, Are they a good person? Now you broke the commands. And he just started saying this, Unless you repent, you too will perish. You heard that in the Bible? Jesus gives a list of places that he's taken the gospel to and compares it to the people in the Old Testament that had prophets that come that even though that they didn't repent or whatever, if I would have been sent to those places, they would have repented at the preaching and said, but no, this place that I've come to, Bethesda, all these things that Jesus, these places Jesus mentioned, he said, unless you repent, you'll perish just like they did. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And Ray Comfort just starts saying, unless you repent, you too will perish. You're a phony. Unless you repent, you too will perish. You're a fake. Unless you repent, you too will perish. You just want money. Unless you repent, you too will perish. That guy finally leaves. He goes home. The testimony goes, he slays in the bed, and as soon as his eyelids close, he hears a voice that says, unless you repent, you too will perish. And his eyes pop open. Starts to go to sleep again. He and a voice comes into his head as soon as his eyes close. Unless you repent, you too will perish. The guy was tormented by the living word of God all night, comes back to the open air preaching, says, I give my life to Christ last night. 
The word use. The knife that God has given you. Abraham had the knife, but it says he himself carried the fire. You are not alone in your mission. My God, the Holy Spirit, the helper. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. When you share that testimony, there's fire on that. When you shout to them, unless you repent, you too will perish. There's fire on that. See, it's the Holy Spirit that draws man to themselves. And it's the Holy Spirit's unctioning that burns within you that brings that word, that knife, and makes it living and sharp and powerful. When Jesus said, you shall receive power, how does the Holy Spirit empower you? Let me tell you one of the ways you can, evan other way, another way you can evangelize is not just through tracts, not just through your testimony, not just through quoting Scripture, but it's what I like to call the power evangelism. See, a lot of this go down on the streets of Mardi Gras because your finite knowledge is limited. When Jesus said, you shall receive power, how does the Holy Spirit make you powerful and powerful evangelism? Well, Jesus demonstrated some things. The Bible says that he only did what he saw his father do. Who was more powerful than Jesus on the earth? What made Jesus so powerful? In prayer, he saw what his father was doing and just replicated it here on earth. He even says that he only spoke what he heard his father command him to speak. So in other words, he spoke what he heard his father say, and he just repeated it here on earth. Power came. When the baptism of the Holy Spirit came, in Acts chapter 2 said they were all together, they heard a sound from heaven, they saw tongues of fire descend, and then they spoke with tongues. And Peter says this is what was prophesied by Joel in Joel chapter 2. And so if you go back to Joel chapter 2, it talks about the coming of the Spirit. And it says when the Spirit is poured out on all the flesh, that the sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. On men's servants and maidservants, I'll pour out my Spirit. And then he relates that to Acts 2 and how that's a fulfillment. And nowhere in Joel 2 does it say tongues or even prophecy, but Joel 2 says prophecy, visions, and dreams. It's fulfilled one and the same. If you go to Joel 2, it says when you prophesy, when somebody prophesies, they speak the word of the Lord. And the reason they're able to speak the word of the Lord is because they have an ear to hear the voice of God. They speak what they hear the Father command. Visions and dreams, they have the, the, the spiritual sight to see what the Father is doing. So you go to Acts chapter 2, the first thing that happens is they hear a sound from heaven like a violent rushing wind. An ear to hear. Then they see the tongues of fire, the eye to see, and then they spoke with tongues as they replicated what the Father let them hear and see. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just about a prayer language. It's about receiving an ear to hear, an eye to see what the Father is doing and replicate it here on the earth. How many times I get ready for a service and I, like I was praying this past fall, 
We went to minister on a Friday night, and the Lord said, look for the guy in the red shirt that's about four rows back. And guess what? On the inside aisle, that fourth row right there, there was a guy, big tall guy with a red shirt on. The Lord had me pray for him. Times in revival, God would show me people that would sit like in the sound booth and say there's a call of ministry on their life. And, and I would see it in my prayer closet the night before I go the next Sunday night to preach. And the guy the Lord showed me in my prayer closet is sitting in the sound booth. Gives his life to the Lord, surrenders to the ministry, and still serving. What made that moment powerful? Because the Lord allowed me to see what he was doing, and all I had to do was do what he was already doing. What if God showed you at work tomorrow somebody that just, their, their, over the weekend, their spouse just filed divorce papers on them and they're broken and God gave you the word that would bring healing to them and bring them to Christ. And you show up and say, the Lord showed me this, but listen, this, this divorce is not going to end in death. God's going to bring healing to your soul and Jesus is going to come into your life. And all of a sudden, they drop the papers, they're in their hand, fall on their knees, weep and cry, and everybody can't understand why they're not doing their job because they're getting saved. Power evangelism. See, if you really want to be a soul winner, God will give you the tools to be a soul winner. The disciples had no gospel tract. They didn't have the canon of Scripture. All they did is they went into a prayer closet, received an eye to see and an ear to hear, and they did what the Father shown them to do. All right, Brother Grady. Good sermon. I get it. We should be an evangelist. I just don't know it's for me. I don't know if I feel led to do this. You know, there is a leading of the Spirit, and we need to be careful with the Lord in, in navigating how we share sometimes. But what if I said to my wife, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to be faithful to you, but I just don't know if I'm feeling that today. Lord, I know you said to go in all the world and preach the gospel, but I'm just not feeling it today. Yes, there's a time when the Lord says, go do this and that, but you know what the Bible says in that parable of the sower, the sower goes out and he just starts scattering seed. The Bible says in that First Thessalonians, guess what it says? To pray without ceasing. You know what that means? doesn't mean you go around all the time, God, I bless you in the name of Jesus. Oh, how you doing, Bob? It means you have your God antenna up where there's always open communication to him. And as you're scattering seed, the Lord might say, all right, there, that, pot, that potted soil over there, go plant that seed right there. Led by the Spirit does not mean obey when it's convenient. God, I know you said that thieves won't make heaven and I'm supposed to tithe you for that stealing, but you know, my, that electric bill just doesn't have me feeling led to give in the offering today. It's all about convenience. And when it comes to evangelism, some of us, you may struggle with coming to church and being faithful, but for many of us, this is easy. This is our convenience. And you've heard message on soul winning before, but nothing moves you to action. 
My question to you is not have you ever led somebody to Jesus. My question is, is in your Christian walk, have you ever even made an attempt to tell someone about Christ? And how long has it been since you made that attempt to tell someone about Christ? What should motivate you to do so? Number one, your love for God. He who loves me will keep my commands. You don't keep the commands, you show you don't love God. What else should motivate you? The fate of the ungodly. Hell is real. In this final week of studies with SUM, I was having to read in my textbook about Polycarp. And I actually quoted the, what Polycarp said on Facebook, and one of my, my uh, a minister friends from Tennessee said, is this some sort of fish? You lost me at Polycarp. If you don't know what a carp is, it's a fish. It's a, does that mean many fish? I don't know. Polycarp is the guy's name. He was one of the early church ministers. And when they tried to get him to shut up about Jesus, and he said, well, I'm okay, you can do this to me. And they said, well, we're going to throw you to the lions. He said, well, throw me to the Bring the lions now. Bring the beast now. I said, oh. And it was kind of mocking the guy. Oh, so you're going to try to hurt my lions. Well, if you want, to, you want the lions to come now, we'll just skip that. We'll just burn you at the stake. And he says, you could burn me at that stake in that fire that burns for an hour, but have you forgotten the fire that you're going to that will last for eternity? And you know what, folks? Hell is real in the early church right after even Jesus died. They preached on it. Church history tells us they warned of the fires of hell. It's not just something we made up to intimidate people with fear. It is real. Have you even thought about what happens to the ungodly, the unbeliever, the heathen? If somebody is blind and they're walking toward a cliff, and you know once they get off that cliff, they're going to plummet to their death, wouldn't you do something to try to stop them? Wouldn't you speak to them and warn them? You would probably even grab them and pull them. You might even football tackle them and hold them against their will so they wouldn't perish walking off the cliff. But see, the world, the lost is blind. They're heading towards the cliff of eternity, and yet we sit in our Christian circle. Say, they're going to hell, and we never think to warn them. We're going to go eat after church and you're going to sit there at that Chinese buffet and does it ever mention, cross your mind that they got them Buddha statues and that's what they worship in that place or it's the thought process they have about that that those people that are serving you your warm Sunday Christian dinner are going to perish in hell. Does a thought ever cross your mind about the fate of the ungodly? This morning I'm about to close. And maybe some of you have already closed on me, and that's okay. You answer to the Lord. You're not here for me. I don't need you to hear me. I need you to hear the Lord. But there's a guy by the name of John Thomas that wrote something called The Hideous Doctrine. And I remember back in 2001, the summer of 2001, when I heard this, it wrecked me about the fate of the ungodly. I've never forgotten it. I've preached on it. I've included it in messages. But this morning in closing, I just simply want to read what he wrote. And it is quite lengthy. 
But I'm asking you to hold on. And if you haven't heard anything else that I've said, you will hear this. Don't let the enemy distract you this morning. John Thomas wrote, that hideous doctrine of hell is fading. How often have you thought of it in the past month? Does it make a difference in your concern for others or in your witness? Is it a constant and proper burden? Most believers would have to say no, but the individual isn't the only one to blame. After all, the doctrine no longer gets its float in the church parade. It has become a museum piece at best, stored in the shadows of a far corner. The reality of hell, however, demands we haul the monstrous thing out again and study it until it changes us. Ugly, garish, and familiar as it is, this doctrine will indeed have a daily, practical, and personal effect on every believer who comes to terms with its force. Our Lord's words on the subject are unnerving. In Luke 16, he tells us of a rich man who died and went to hell. The abode of the unsaved. From that story and a few other revelatory facts, we can infer several characteristics of hell. Number one, it's a place of great physical pain. The rich man's initial remark concludes with the most pressing concern. In Luke 16, 24, he says, I am in agony in this flame. We do not make enough of this. We've all experienced pain to some degree. We know it can make a mockery of all life's goals and beauties. Yet we do not seem to know pain as a hint of hell. It is a searing foretaste of what will befall those who do not know Christ. It is a grim reminder of what the believer will be spared from. God does not leave us with the simple fact of hell's physical pain. He tells us how real people will respond to that pain. Our Lord is not being macabre. He is simply telling us the truth. First, there will be weeping. Weeping is not something we get a grip on. It is something that grips us. Recall how you were affected when the last time you heard someone weep. Remember how you were moved with compassion to want to protect and restore that person. The Lord wants us to know and consider what an upsetting experience it is for the person in hell. Another response will be wailing. While weeping attracts our sympathy, wailing frightens and offends us. It is the pitiable ball of a soul seeking escape, hurt beyond repair, eternally damaged. A wail is a sound gone grotesque because of conclusions we can't live with. A third response will be gnashing of teeth. Why? Perhaps because of anger or frustration. It may be a defense against crying out or an intense pause when one is too weary to cry any longer. Hell has two other aspects rarely considered which are both curious and frightening. On earth, we take for granted two physical properties that keep us physically, mentally, and emotionally stable. The first is light. The second is solid, fixed surfaces. Oddly, 
These two things will not accommodate you in hell. Hell is a place of darkness. Imagine the person who has just entered hell. Close your eyes and picture it now. A neighbor, a relative, a co-worker, a friend, after a roar of physical pain, blasts him. He spends his first moments wailing and gnashing his teeth. But after a season, he grows accustomed to the pain. Not that it becomes tolerable, but that his capacity for it has enlarged to comprehend it, yet he's not consumed by it. Though he hurts, he is now able to think. And he instinctively looks about him. But he sees only blackness. In his past life, he learned that if he looked long enough, a glow of light would yield definition to his surroundings. So he blinks and he strains to focus his eyes. His efforts yield only blackness. He turns and strains his eyes in another direction. He waits. He sees nothing but unyielding black ink. It clings to him, smothering and oppressing him. He realizes that the darkness is not going to give way, so he nervously feels around and about him for something that is solid that he can get his bearings on, but he feels nothing. He reaches for walls, rocks, trees, chairs, anything. He stretches his lugs to touch the ground, but nothing. Hell is a bottomless pit. However, the new occupant is slow to learn. In a growing panic, he kicks his feet, he waves his arms, he stretches and he lunges, but he finds nothing. After a few more feverish tries, he pauses from exhaustion, suspended in the darkness. Suddenly, with a scream, he kicks, he twists, he lunges, he moves. Until he's too exhausted to move, still finding nothing. He hangs there, alone with his pain, unable to touch a solid object or see a solitary thing. He begins to weep. His sobs are choked out by the darkness. They are lost in the roar of hell. As time passes, he begins to do what the rich man did. He again starts to think. His first thoughts are thoughts of hope. He still thinks as he did here on earth where he kept himself alive with hope. When things got bad, he found a way out. When he, needed, when he was sick, he took medicine. When he was hungry, there was food to be eaten. If he lost love, there was more love to be found. So he thinks in his mind for a plan to bring about the hope that's applied, that's building up in his chest. And he thinks, of course, Jesus, the God of love, he can get me out of this. So he cries out with a surge, Jesus, Jesus, you were right. Help me, get me out of this. He waits, breathing hard with desperation, and the sound of his voice slips into the darkness and is lost. He tries again. I believe! 
me from this. Again, the darkness smothers his words. Our sinner is not unique. Everyone in hell believes. It hits him. This is forever. And Jesus made it very clear. He used the word forever to describe both heaven and hell. As the rich man pleaded for a drop of water, so the new occupant entertains a similar thought. On earth, he found that even bad things could be tolerated if one could find relief from time to time. Perhaps even if hell could become more, could become more tolerable over time. But he finds, according to Revelation 14 and 11, that the smoke of this torment goes up forever and ever. And there's no rest day or night. No rest day and night. Think of that. Are you still unmoved? And do you think that it doesn't matter that you evangelize? The people we failed to minister to when the Spirit prompted us. Could it be that the, the very reason that Jesus will have to wipe every tear from our eye is because we failed and because of our dereliction of duty? Have you still no wish for others to be saved, my friend? You are not saved yourself. And this morning, there's two people. There are people here that you know the Lord. You know you're a Christian. But there are some of you who thought you were a Christian. Maybe you know you're not a Christian. And you think it doesn't matter how you live your life. If nothing else, you know that you will be held accountable. And the judgment of God is for real. You don't have to endure that. And saints, the people we come in contact don't have to endure that if we will just give them an opportunity to receive Jesus. This morning, if you know that you're on your way to the place that I just read about and you need the love of Jesus, today is your day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You are not promised that the Spirit of God will ever contend or strive with you again. These altars are open.